In October of 1307 AD, King Philip IV of France ordered a series of early morning raids to apprehend members of the Order of the Knights Templar. In 1312, the powerful monarch would conspire with the Catholic Church and have Pope Clement V officially dissolve the Holy Order of Knights. Why would the Catholic Church bend to the will of the French king? What happened to the other chapters of Templars outside of France? What secrets did the Templars possibly possess that made them such a threat to the power structure of the European monarchy? This case file joined the theorists in welcoming back researcher, adventurer, and author Freddy Silva as he takes on these questions and more in The Knights Templar, Part 2. Welcome to Alien Theorist Theorizing Case File 167 Part 2, The Knights Templar, with special guest, Freddie Silva. I'm Brayden. I'm Zell. I'm Dan. I'm Andrew. If you don't know who Freddie Silva is, we had him on about four years ago. Uh, he's a leading researcher on ancient civilizations, restricted history, sacred sites, and consciousness. He's published six books. He may be the world's best metaphysical speaker, one of our personal favorites, Freddie Silva. Welcome back to the show. Well, it's good to be back again. I can't wait to hear how we're going to link aliens and Templars together. Well, I'm pretty sure after your book, they head to Mars. Is <laughs> <laughs> what I was thinking, right? Because, you know, we've we found no more evidence on Earth. So there's only one conclusion. Logo, the red <laughs> yeah. planet. It's pretty obvious when you think about it. That's what I'm thinking. I, I can make that connection fairly easy and pretty quickly. I'm surprised you missed it, but you know what? You had a lot going on. I was being distracted, you know. Um, yeah, it's been uh, it's been about four years, as we said, and you, you are one of our your most requested guests to return. So we're we're stoked to have you back on. By I think, far, I think we made we made the joke way back then that we're going to do the three story three part arc with Freddie Silva, and it took four years to get to arc two. So, <laughs> well, half the time maybe to the third part. It was that abduction scenario. They said it, uh, it was going to take no time at all. They lied. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I guess, uh, I guess what people want to know is, from crop circles to Templars, what, uh, how did you get started down your research into the Templars? I know, are, were you born in Portugal or are your family, is your family from Portugal? I was born in Portugal, yeah. In fact, there, there is a connection. I mean, it's, it's to do with the underlying wisdom that is found in crop circles, in ancient temples, and what the Templars were practicing. It actually links everything together. Uh, of course, I had no idea when I was writing this stuff. Uh, it's, a, it's a process that you go through and you learn as you go along. Uh, but no, there is a, there is a connection. Uh, and in fact, I was born not far from where the Templars set up uh, their home base uh, and created Europe's first nation state. So... That's what got me excited about the story. It was going to be a, a side project. I was going to find out about my uh, country of origin and why we're so obsessed with the Templars. And until recently, the civic calendar was still drawn by the Knights Templar from uh, 800 years ago or 900 years ago now. So I thought, that's a hell of a legacy. How did we get here? Why are the Templars so 
integral to the creation of this country because no one ever talks about that. It's always about the Templars and Temple Mount, the Templars in France, the Templars in Spain, Templars in England and possibly Scotland. But Portugal get, kind of gets sort of sidelined and it turns out to be the best story of all because without understanding what the Templars were doing in Portugal, you can't understand the Templars at all. In fact, it's almost like back engineering the story to reach the conclusions which hundreds of authors have actually made, uh, except they've missed the most important part. And even I didn't uh, have that idea until I spent 15 years scratching away at this incredible stone to reach this conclusion. Yeah, I know for personally from our research, I, I've uh, like going through the popular like Templars in popular culture. I know, you know, they're featured big in Dan Brown's, you know, uh, his his seminal piece of the Da Vinci Code and things like that. But even, um, you know, people who are interested with the Crusades, like you've heard of the Templars, you know that they were big uh, during the Crusades or integral in taking back parts of what, what is considered you know the Holy Land, uh, Jerusalem and other cities in that area. Um, but you, you, I was also surprised about the, the large part that they played in aiding both Spain and Portugal, taking back those lands from the Moors that had been there for hundreds of years at that point. About pretty much that. I mean, the story gets very convoluted as it gets uh, closer to our, to our era. I mean, their golden age was pretty much, it was very short. I mean, it was about, I want to say about 70 years uh, and in fact, the, bit, the, the first pitfall is confusing the Crusaders with the Templars. The two had nothing to do with each other. It was a group of people who showed up in Jerusalem at this opportune moment, which, by the way, this, uh, the brotherhood to which they belonged, they've been waiting for a thousand years to get back into Jerusalem. Uh, it, they were very patient back in those days. They, they weren't in a hurry. And, uh, and that was the first problem that you had to overcome to separate Crusaders and Templars. These people kind of found themselves with this wonderful opportunity uh, which presented itself. And uh, these guys just show up in uh, Jerusalem and they come from similar parts in France. And at the same time, there's the, uh, one of the counts that was running a little county in the west part of Europe called Portugale, where the city of Porto is today in Portugal. Uh, he shows up in the same place. So you have the the nucleus of the uh, the body of the Templars in uh, 1101 in Jerusalem, having tea and drinking coffee on Temple Mound with what was essentially the guy who started the concept of Portugal off. And it was a small leap from there to figure out, well, they came from the same lineage. They came from Burgundy and France. They were all part of the same families or the same brotherhoods. They were all interconnected very closely, whether through marriage or through belief systems. And it's almost like they, they had this idea of creating this spiritual kingdom uh, somewhere in Europe, well away from the, uh, uh, the church, where they could practice a much truer Christianity, which is nothing, nothing whatsoever to do with, with Catholicism. Right. It's something that, uh, you know, it, that Jesus was practicing, but it was already thousands of years old by the time he was on the scene. It goes back to Japan in 8000 BC, these practices. So the Templars are part of a very, very long lineage of spiritual traditions. Uh, and it was just kind of strange putting these things together because you never would have seen that coming. Right. Yeah, that, I, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Uh, uh, trying for them to break away from that, both uh, because at the time, I believe like France and both the Catholic Church, they were somewhat almost <clears throat> in league with each other. Like I felt like the royalty had kind of infiltrated into that. They were, I mean, for lack of a better word, corrupting the the, the, the Christian ideals or which had probably been on decline up until that point. 
the whole thing was corrupted. And I think all you have to do is go back to the Gnostic Gospels to recognize true Christianity. And even the Gospels of Philip and Thomas, which you don't get here much about, uh, if you read them carefully, they really have a go at fundamentalist Christians saying, yeah, these people have no idea what the hell they're practicing. Uh, they call them waterless canals. Uh, they claim to know the, the mystery, but they don't know anything about the mystery, but they practice it, but they don't know what the hell they're practicing. It's a fake church, they call it. So even they even had a fake church back then, like we have fake media today. Uh, they have fake everything back then. Uh, and yes, it was uh, a real fight between Gnosticism and fundamentalism, which goes back to you know the time of Christ and went on for another 300 years. It was essentially a group of guys who figured that they would take control of Europe uh, because the Roman Empire had collapsed. So they figured, what a great way to control these millions of people. We'll invent a religion. And essentially, they borrowed the story of Mithra, who was a resurrected god from the Indus Valley in 6,500 BC, who begins his initiation on the spring equinox. And nine months later, on the uh, winter solstice, he uh, goes into the underworld after taking several drugs, comes back three days later, he's risen from the dead, and he's figuratively and metaphorically nailed to a cross. Right. And thereafter goes on to teach this spirituality of self-empowerment to the masses. Uh, that sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? So um, Constantine, the emperor, he was being badgered by the people who were running the Catholic Church because the, the story of Jesus, the, the, the man, wasn't getting traction in Europe. And... Um, because the, the Roman people and everybody around the Mediterranean was used to idolizing their heroes as gods. They had to do something really special to be idolized. And Jesus was a normal guy who did extraordinary things. Well, that wasn't going to wash. It wasn't selling. So they had to turn him into a god. So they forced Constantine to basically say, can you come up with a religion for us that we can insert the story of Jesus? And he said, well, the one that I practice is Mithra. All you have to do is take out Mithra, put in the word Jesus, and you end up with Catholicism. Uh, so that's where the problems began. And a thousand years later, there was the, uh, the, uh, the Brotherhood of the Gnostic Christians, uh, essentially the Essenes under a different name. And they kept a low profile for obvious reasons. And around 1100, you have a group of people, some minor nobles throughout the center of Europe that said, you know what, the time might be ripe to return to Jerusalem and dig up what the Essene brothers left there, buried there, uh, and we know where it is. We've got all the information. We've kept it very safely. And then when we've found the information, we're going to decipher it because they have to employ a cryptographer in Belgium to decipher what they found on the Temple Mount. And then we're going to find uh, a place in the western part of uh, Europe where we have some good contacts who are part of the family and we're going to create a brand new country from scratch. And we're going to create a kingdom within a kingdom. And there we're going to bring back hope for the people of Europe. So no wonder they were loved for what they were doing. They were selling hope and personal salvation, whereas the church was trying to take it all away. So once you understand the what the inner brotherhood of the Templars was really, really up to and how all the tradition is, you begin to really understand what they were doing. So when you mentioned like, so inner brotherhood, and so would there be like, so regular Knights Templars would just be like, like just the warriors, the the cooks, like the people in the line, like the line of, of the caravan, like on the boots on the ground kind of guys. And then when you talk about the inner brotherhood, these are the guys who like, who go through the oath and they like are brought into the, like the secretive order of the Templars. Is, is that kind of what you... Yeah, pretty much. Just like the Essenes, actually. In fact, if you look at the Essenes and the Templars together, uh, there are about 11 points of commonality between the two sects, and they even dress the same. 
they had the same swearing ceremonies. They even tithed uh, part of their wages and gave them to the poor. And uh, there was an outer brotherhood that did all the menial stuff. And, uh, and, and everybody had to do some fighting back then, although the Templars themselves actually didn't do much fighting at all. But in those days, even the priests had to do more fighting than reading because that was the way the things were back then. But uh, there was an inner brotherhood that behaved like a ministerial college. Uh, they were a kind of a, a brotherhood aside from the brotherhood and they behaved very unusually. They kept themselves to themselves. Um, they read from the book of John the Baptist where the church said he never wrote the book. Well, it's funny because the Mandeans in Iraq today still read from the book of John the Baptist. So that makes that story a little bit uncomfortable. So they were looking for something much more spiritual. And when uh, the knights joined the order and they were kept under a period of observation for a year to be judged on how responsible and uh, how articulate and also how dem demonstrating they were in order to maintain special secrets, they were then allowed to join the inner brotherhood. And when they did so, they swore to discover the joys of paradise. Now, that doesn't sound like a guy who's joining in order to go around fighting Arabs. It sounds like someone who's expected to find some kind of spiritual development, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So if you look very carefully at the language, and you've got to understand the language of esotericism, and this is why it took me 15 years to write this. I, I, hit, I hit this wall. Uh, I was just about a year into it, and I figured this is going to be a really easy book to write. And then I couldn't understand what the hell was going on. The language is obscure. I had to go off and publish two other books on esotericism and discover the uh, origin of sacred sites and how temples work and, and the metaphoric language of the secret teachings. And then I went back to the temple and I thought, my God, these people are talking in metaphors. You have to understand what they mean. And once right. you understand that, now you know what they were practicing and what they were protecting. Uh, and, it's, it's, and then I said, we're, we're protecting the biggest secret in Europe that essentially is going, to, if it's let out under the, the right guise, it will undermine the entire establishment of the church. It will bring down Catholicism and pretty much every monarch in Europe. This is the danger that was being faced by the church and a lot of the, the Christian monarchs. The Templars knew the truth of what was really going on. And it all goes back to a, a secret practice that they were doing in their subterranean chambers and only practiced after three years of indoctrination. So you had to go and learn the mysteries, you learn the techniques of initiation, and then you learn the deeper mysteries of the universe. Things like how to harness the laws of nature, which is pretty, you know, pretty good stuff when you think about it. Because if you if you can understand how nature works, you can manipulate it. You can, you can do some very strange things. Uh, the Egyptians were the last people I know that were practicing that kind of stuff. So all this taps into a very long mystical tradition that goes back thousands of years. And it was for that reason alone that they were highly persecuted. They could offer you personal salvation, whereas the church wanted to be the intermediary between you and God. Whereas the Templars always said, no, 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 no. God is not something out there. God is in here. It's inside everybody. You are God's. Learn and act to be like them. Well, that was revolutionary back in the uh, the Middle yeah. Ages. No one else was doing that, and not quite as profitable, I imagine. No, the yeah, the church wants the church wants <laughs> exactly. tithes. They want the tithes. Although ironically, <laughs> to your point, the Templars became very rich. Well, here's the funny thing: they were already rich to begin with, and then they gave up all their wealth. They put it into escrow. They buggered off to Jerusalem, working in really hot, dusty conditions, digging pits going through these tunnels where anything, if they got blisters, if the blisters got infected, which often they did, they would uh, contract cholera and sometimes people would die. 
So they're going to work in hot claustrophobic conditions to look for treasure. It, they may as well stayed in Europe and kept their money and has a nice cognac by the fireplace with nice comfortable clothes. No, you don't give all that up to go and dig in uncomfortable places underground to locate money when you already have money. You don't need it. You could have kept it. Right. So the treasure was actually much deeper than that. The treasure, it turns out, the treasure of words. It was a literary treasure. Uh, yes, there was money found buried under Temple Mount, but what the, the real treasure was is what they took back to Europe, and it was a whole bunch of scrolls which required a cryptographer in Belgium to work out what these things meant. It was all coded information that went back to the time of the mysteries teachings, and this was the big secret and the big treasure that they cared about. They didn't care about anything else. That was the one thing they really wanted to protect. So the you would say that the Templars kind of uh, what you know, most historians say they're, they're kind of meteoric rise to power and influence as a, as a sect or as a, or as an order of knights, you'd attribute that to the scrolls as, uh, apart from their, uh, I, I, I mean, we do know about their, their kind of like their banking system. A lot of, a lot of people will put them, uh, at the head of the, the first international banking system. Is that all like incidental Did that arise? Like aside from that, like, do you think they plan that or that's just something that they're just, they, they took advantage of, or do you think they, they mostly concentrated on the scrolls? Or the no, what happened was is that with the information at their disposal, they were going around Europe uh, teaching the uh, peasants how to empower themselves. So you got to remember, this is the time when Europe, uh, the, the, the main uh, currency in Europe at the time was plunder. And the, uh, the, the food on the table used to conform of human flesh. There was a lot of cannibalism going on in Europe at the time. And you had this mass organization called the Catholic Church that was making sure everybody stayed very poor and in fear. What the Templars were selling to these people in the middle of nowhere, and they often would live in the middle of nowhere, by the way, uh, was a personal understanding of how things truly are, not how they are perceived. And they would basically set up schools for the poor. They would send the children off to learn the important things in life. They would teach agriculture. They were said to be masters of raising the land from the dead. And in three years, they were selling surplus food all around them. They had a charitable system that offered uh, free uh, medicine, uh, a bit like uh, the national health system in Europe, uh, something we could do here in America, I think. Uh, so it was a subsidized healthcare system. And then when you retired, there was money set aside for the elderly to be looked after. It was a social system where everybody benefited. So anyone in Europe that was basically rubbing shoulders with the Templars said, hey, I'll have some of that. Thank you very much. And in turn, we'll also get protection from a bunch of, of knights who were pretty good at handling swords. So if these church sent along some henchmen, they would put up a big, a big good fight. And so they gave whatever little they had to the Templars, and the Templars had held it in escrow, and they tithed a little bit of that money so that whatever they made, they would then take 10%, and they would put that uh, profit to help the next village and then the next village. And that's how they grew very rich because everybody realized, hey, this is going to really get us out from under the yoke of the church. We have basically a protecting angel and we're also self-supporting. We're all looking after each other and we're becoming financially viable. We don't have to rely on outside help anymore. That's how they really got rich. I don't know. Sounds like communism to me. <laughs> Socialism. 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 <laughs> the red, right? The red? I think these were commies. <laughs> I, I think we got this all wrong. It's pretty obvious. 
<laughs> Soviet Templars. It's <laughs> sickle. It's not a big uh, yeah. job. But no, I mean, the banking thing came much later. In fact, they got the idea from the Arab traders who were working in the desert because they were being tired of being molested, you know, by other people in the desert, uh, usually the Saracens and the, um, the Ashashin, uh, the assassins. Uh, so they were robbed uh, at, uh, when they're taking their caravans from the desert. So they had these letters of credit and they were able to cash in when they got to the other side of the desert, uh, when they went to a special repository, got their money. The Templars said, hey, that would be a great idea in Europe because it means we can now travel across a country and uh, not get robbed. We'll just cash in the note of credit at a preceptory on the other end. So all of their preceptories essentially were uh, ATMs. They were cash points. They were traveler's well, checks. Yeah. Essentially, the whole order did become corrupt. I'm talking about a period here when the first 70 years of the order's existence, but they grew so quickly, so fast, because their popularity was growing in leaps and bounds. That, And I was reading some of Hugh de Payon's original letters. Even he, at his time, was struggling to maintain the order within the temple because... You know, all of this uh, PR is getting out saying the Templars are under something pretty good here and it sounds like it's going to be profitable. They're attracting also all kinds of nefarious people. And they did not have the enough people uh, to do the checks and balances. And eventually, within 100 years, there were people infiltrating the system who were not of the same type. Right. And that's how the order began to corrupt from within. And that's where you get the stories of the Templars being bad people and connected to the Illuminati and so forth. There is a bit of truth to it, but that's not the real truth. That's not what the real Templar Brotherhood was about and not why it was funded. It was just because the order grew too quickly, too fast. And they couldn't maintain control of everybody. Right. Now that, now when people like, when you, if you don't really know much about the Templars, you always associate them so much with the church, like, like almost like crusades, like they're obviously part of the crusades, but they're not crusaders. They're right. But you always think, so how much did the church really know of what the Templars, like, like what you're saying is the Templars are, for the people, not so much for the church, right? They're, it seems not quite the same. They knew nothing. Uh, they were, always had a big smoke screen about everything. They would, uh, the Templars would profess that they love Jesus Christ and we're going to build buildings to the order of God. We're going to we're going to build Gothic cathedrals to glorify God. Well, they didn't mention which God they were actually uh, honoring. It wasn't the, the church's God, that's for sure. And they were able to introduce all this Arabic architecture, which is essentially what a Gothic cathedral is. It's Arabic architecture. So anytime uh, fundamentalist Christians go to church in cathedrals, they're actually going into an Arab building. Uh, there's this strange and ironic irony of this whole story. Uh, and uh, they did this within a short period of time to bring back this sense of community and to show that we're all basically working for the same creative force. Uh, it doesn't have a name. It just thought the whole thing was a big, uh, the same creative force. But their, their, their big focus was really to bring back to the, to the point where Everybody was on the same page about working together and not having this idea that fear is all there is to live for. And I've lost track of the the, the question. Was going somewhere? Was that the only kind of Arab um, religious factors that they brought in? Was the temples? Because I remember when King Philip was using his excuse for burning them at the stake, he said that they were practicing Muslim um, Muslim practices and stuff like that, and worshiping Baphomet. 
it's uh, again they had no idea what the hell. Oh, that's not what the question was. Uh, the, the the Templar, I mean, the Church had no idea what was going on the inside. They had spies who tried to break in right. to the inner brotherhood, and some of them almost got out with the information, except that there was an order of death put on anybody who revealed anything that was being dis- discussed within the inner brotherhood, to which these people were not privy to, because the information obviously was very dangerous. And uh, one of the things that they found out about, uh, one of the spies got back to the church, said, uh, yeah, they're practicing some Middle Eastern uh, practice, which honors a devil called Baphomet. And uh, now I looked into that. You have to understand the origin of words and how they get completely corrupted. And the word Baphomet goes back to an Arabic word called Abafohilomet. And are they to say that after three beers? (laughs) I I, I can say it after one. Yeah, I'm done. Yeah. (laughs) You are indeed clever, young one. <laughs> and um, it, you know what it means? It means the source or father of wisdom. And you wonder, they were worshipping the source or father of wisdom. What were they worshipping? It turns out that the word was related to the mummified head of John the Baptist. It was the only thing that they cared about. Because when you think about it, every single church that the Templars built was dedicated to John the Baptist and Mary Magdalene, not Jesus. That's right. the big clue. You have to understand who Mary Magdalene and John the Baptist were to understand the Templars. Until you do that, you're nowhere. So they gave the church lip service. They said, oh, yeah, Jesus, great guy. Yeah, they are, they respected the guy, but that wasn't who they were following. They were following John the Baptist. And there, there was a, a fulmigation that was issued by Pope, I think it was Pope Leo the, the, the Pius XI, who in the 18th century issued the, uh, a big fatwa against the Templars and the Freemasons because they said they pulled the wool over our eyes. They didn't worship Jesus. They were worshiping John the Baptist all along. Well, who'd have thought that that would have been a bad thing? So that's what was what was going on. The church really didn't know what was what was happening. And when Philip, from his point of view, he wanted to get into the inner brotherhood, but of course they realized that you know he was as bad as a four dollar note. There's no way yeah. they're going to teach him the secrets of the mysteries because he's going to be, use it to subjugate people. He was a complete bastard. So he took a bit of a slight at that, and he'd also borrowed a lot of money from the Templars, and he wasn't going to pay it back. He had some very expensive habits. <laughs> <laughs> like any despot, and I won't mention the recent elections, uh, he decided to cover his tracks by lying about what they were doing and said, uh, oh, they're worshipping these devils and they do uh, incest and uh, child rape, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we need to put them to death. And he talks the uh, this friend, who happens to be the head of the Catholic Church, into this. And later on, the church actually recanted this, said, actually, we got it all wrong. We had that information all along. And uh, I think it was in the 1950s when the Templars were actually rehabilitated. So, yeah, the story is much uh, stranger than uh, we've been told. Well, there is some truth to that, though, because they they did say that they were worshipping false idols, which were small mummified heads, which I'm assuming now would potentially be the head of John the Baptist. Exactly. One of the 16 heads of John the Baptist was going around Europe at the time, I should point out. John the Baptist (laughs) had 16 heads? That's a lot. So, I mean, there's a big market for holy relics. But no, apparently they had the original head of John the Baptist, and that this is the one thing that they were big on, which, of course, prompted me to figure out what was important about John the Baptist. Well, he was part of a long tradition of uh, magician priests who were part of the, you know, like the patriarchal uh, um, uh, portion of the uh, divine bloodline. 
And this goes back to Sumeria, it goes back to Mesopotamia, it goes back to the time of the flood. We're talking about the lords of Anu, uh, the divine brotherhood, and so forth. It's a very long story. Uh, but anyway, uh, John the Baptist was part of that tradition. He was the one that was maintaining that pillar. The person that had the power in, within that priesthood was the woman. That was Mary Magdalene. And she came from the tradition of the, the, the Sumerian priestesses, and they carried the bloodline. So that was part of what this was all about. It was about protecting a divine bloodline. And I actually have the swearing in ceremony of the Templar master in Portugal that talks about to protect the bloodline of David. Now, what would that be? What was that being said in Portugal unless there was a bloodline in Portugal that was worth preserving? So Ooh. they obviously maintained the people that were part of that bloodline. It was the best kept secret to this very day. And that eventually becomes the blueprint for the book called The Holy Blood, Holy Grail, upon which Dan Brown based his um, book on, which is not a bad thing. I think it helped, uh, helped everybody see a much bigger picture. Before we move on too far, I just had this one note about when they're, so the, the Templars are digging under Temple Mount. And now there is rumored that the capstone of the Great Pyramid, what, do you know anything? Can you tell us anything about that? Whatever came about ben, that? Ben Ben. Ben Ben. Yeah, like did the, was that found or what? What is the what is the myth or what is the what's the history say behind that? Yeah, the, the capstone's been found. There's several of them. There's uh, about a dozen of them. Uh, it was just a big pyramidion. Uh, there's one in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Uh, it's about oh, we're on screen. Uh, it's about yay big. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, and it's made of uh, dolerite, if I'm not mistaken, or basalt. It's very black, uh, beautifully carved, and basically it was just the top of the pyramid. Uh, it was slightly electrostatic, so it would attract lightning. Uh, it was also grounded by the same token. It was just basically the uh, all-seeing eye. The pyramid is essentially the, the foundation of the four elements of matter. The four corners symbolize the four elements of the material world on a triangular base, which is essentially the tetrahedron upon which the whole of life is founded. Now, any, if you look at any DNA, any molecular structure in the universe, it's all held together by a tetrahedral lattice. So the pyramid is, is a very simple way to show you very quickly how the universe is created. Uh, and that essentially is what the pyramid is about. Uh, the Templars had nothing to do with that whatsoever. Um, all they found was uh, a lot of silver, a lot of gold coins on the Temple Mount, and of course, the famous scrolls. Right. Now, I know like the Great Pyramid and Temple Mount, they're like, they're said to be on like telluric currents. Yeah. Is that something that, so like the knights are not following Catholicism. They're following their own, like the universe is God. Like everyone can be God kind of thing. Is like the exactly. The God within. It's funny because when they went around uh, Portugal, in fact, Europe and England for that matter, uh, even Scotland, if you look at the original sites that they found, they would often would have been dedicated to a divine goddess. Usually it was Isis or her regional doppelganger. And uh, they would then honor that site and then they would protect it by building a, an area around it which within which that temple was actually protected. And every one of those sites, without exception, sits at the crossroads of the Earth's Tillery Currents. And if you look at the places where the Templars had their secret initiations, which was always in a secret cave, whether it was natural or man-made, uh, it didn't really matter. It was the location that was important because it's the exact position where initiates going back to Japan or North America for thousands of years had practiced their out-of-body ceremonies and still do in parts of Central America this very day. So that was part of what the whole ritual of initiation was about. And you can still see this 
uh, metaphorically speaking, the third degree of uh, Scottish Rite Freemasonry. Uh, the Scottish Rite is essentially the Knights Templar that changed their name. They went, they moved to Scotland, they just changed their name, and the Pope thought, well, the Templars don't exist anymore. Uh, oh, no, but by the way, we do have a new order that just appeared, coincidentally called the Scottish Rite. Oh, okay, that should be okay. <laughs> they just changed their name. And on the third degree, the Master Mason helps the initiate up from a figurative grave He's declared risen and the blindfold is removed because now, because the information that has been given to the initiate, they can now see with open eyes. You see how the metaphor works. Yeah. You see the world in a bigger picture. It's all there, in, uh, metaphorically speaking, and the uh, uh, right up to the 17th degree, which is the most spiritual, which is the night of the East and the West. And uh, I can't tell you about that because I'd have to kill all of you. Yeah. <laughs> I'd have to kill myself. <laughs> That's true. Please don't. Yeah. So yeah, you're talking about... A, a well, sub- let's at least get a pint first before yeah. we do that. <laughs> yeah, a couple beers first before the killing. Metaphysical teachings as far as you can go. Uh, this is the big secret that they were tapping into and why it was worth taking your time over. It was something that was... Uh, and, and also, when they went to their graves, it's interesting, there was anecdotal information that said that when they were being burnt alive, a lot of them were sitting there smiling, and you know, the smoke is coming up around them because they learned to master the art of fear. They said, you know, a little bit of pain is a lot of all that it will take, and soon we're going to be in the kingdom of heaven, and then we can do a lot of damage from the other side, just like Obi-Wan Kenobi says when he gets yeah. killed, you know? Right. And it's a lot of truth to that. There is a lot of truth to this in the modern era. It's like George Lucas was retelling the Templar story of the initiate in Star Wars, and it's absolutely correct. So you see how it works. It's, it goes from age to age under different guys with different clothes, but it's the same teaching. Well, and there's some truth to that, too, because didn't King Philip and the Pope die soon after? And they died soon after because the power that you had during initiation allowed you to cross into the other world for several days. I mean, you literally had a near-death experience. You left the body, not like shamanism. This is the real thing. And you came back into the body and you're completely aware of what goes on on the next level of reality and you lose all fear. That was the one thing that they all held together. And when I was writing The Last Art of Resurrection, uh, my, my third book, I can't remember now, um, I was tapping into that story and found that this was the, the big secret that was being practiced by every initiatic tradition around the world back to Japan in 8000 BC. So that's a secret, wow. again, worth protecting. Wow. It took a long time to write. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Awesome. So you have, you have this, the, the order of the Templars, um, they're essentially, or for, you know, most historical purposes, they're, they're destroyed by like 1314 or they're kind of broken about then Jacques de Millet is, is immolated at the stake. Um, but you still have Templar orders still active. I mean, France, they're pretty much all totally persecuted at that point. Phillips on, a, on his rage. And then, but you have the order surviving in other areas. You have other sections of them, Portugal, especially, which is, uh, which your research mainly concentrates on. And I mean, there is, you know, there is definite hard evidence there that they, they changed their name. The King of Portugal allowed them to, or the Pope gave them, gave them special permission to form the order of Christ. Is that, do they, is that different? Best, best joke, the greatest joke (laughs) ever perpetrated in the world. You want to hear about it? Yes, we do. Yeah. Before the Night of the Long Knives, the Templars, uh, there were informants that said, the uh, troops are coming for you. You better get on your boats and get out of here. So they got as far as La Rochelle, but the the fleet split up. Half of it went to Scotland. The other half went to Portugal. Uh, So like I said, it was Europe's first nation state. 
the Templars have a ready base there, and they actually not, didn't just run the country. The king himself was a Templar. So when they split to Portugal, the orders went to the Portuguese king, and they, they said, listen, uh, we want to exterminate the order of the Temple, confiscate their lands, and uh, also make sure they go to court because they were practicing devil worship, blah, 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 blah. And the king just wrote back uh, very politely, well, we've done a kind of a minor examination. We haven't found any evidence of that, really. And uh, he sends off the slowest rider back to Rome. It took quite a while to get back to Rome with the response. You know, they were buying time. Meanwhile, the Pope is getting nowhere with the Portuguese. The Spanish have come on board, of course, totally corrupt uh, system over there at the time. And uh, they've taken over the France, they've taken over Germany. So the Portuguese are not playing games. So he sends a, a fumigation to the Portuguese and he says, listen, I want you to wipe out the Templars once and for all. So King Denis gets all the Templars into his room and he says, listen, uh, here's the plan. I've got a letter from the Pope. He's going to start sending armies and the King of Spain is going to send armies. Now, they're bigger than our armies. We can't fight the two armies. So here's what we're going to do. You're going to give me all your land and all your money. And meanwhile, I want you to bugger off to the Algarve for five years. Go take a break. Take a vacation. Lie low for a while and then come back and we'll revisit this conversation. They went, absolutely, carry on. And they did. They buggered off to the Algarve, and just to prove that all habits uh, die hard, the first place that they moved to, they consecrate a new church, they dedicated to John the Baptist. I told you to lie low. <laughs> so five years later, oh, no, meanwhile, the, uh, the um, king of Portugal sends a letter off to the Vatican and says, Papa, uh, I'd like you to know that uh, the Order of the Temple has been exterminated. And coincidentally, we've just discovered there's a brand new order that just appeared out of nowhere called the Knights of the Order of Christ. And I'm sure your eminence will like that. And of course, the Pope writes back and says, absolutely good work. We have now knights who are part of our Christian system. Absolutely. <laughs> the knights come back from vacation. They go to the king. They said, so what's the story? Right. Here's the story. Um, from now on, you are no longer to be called the, the, uh, the Knights Templar. From now, you are going to be called the Knights of the Order of Christ, Sally. And here's the land. Here's your money. Now, what were we doing five years ago? Oh, yes, we were hanging out with the Scottish Templars, who are now called the, the Freemasons. And we were headed to a place called the Labrador, which is a Portuguese name for one of the counties of Canada. And we're going to go oh. to the New World and see if we can hang out there because we're running out of space. The Catholic Church is beginning to squeeze us to the very edge of Europe, which, of course, is Portugal and Scotland. The biggest practical joke ever played in history. <laughs> so now, you, so following that, you know, the, found, the founding of the Order of Christ, the Knights of Order of Christ, the most, I, th I think the, the main or the main narrative is that the the Templars uh, took their influence, they took their money and they put it in towards like a navigation school, at least like at least one navigation school. And this is why you have a lot, a big push for colonization in the, in the kind of the Portugal, the Portuguese, like when they start sending their ships out and start colonizing everywhere at this point. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, even that was a smokescreen. Uh, their, their big academy, the Naval Academy was in the South in the Algarve in a place called Sagres. Uh, still there. 
except it was never there in the first place. It was a complete shell of a building. Uh, because, I mean, you've got to take your bank account. You're not going to put your bank account in one location. You've got to make sure it's in different locations. The main navigational school was actually inland in Tumare, which is their center of activity, and still is to this very day. The most beautiful and most sacred buildings are in Tumare in Portugal, which, by the way, is named after the one of the daughters of Mary Magdalene, and that's a whole other story. And uh, from there, Henry the Navigator, who, by the way, didn't do much navigation, navigating at all. The name was actually a title. He was the Nautilier. Hey, we're, we're very familiar with meaningless titles here on this show. <laughs> we're very familiar with meaningless titles. We give them to our, each other all the time. <laughs> <laughs> what, like a Lebanese mongoose? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he was also the head of the Order of Sion. So the Order of Sion, the Templars, and also the Cistercian Brotherhood of Monks were one and the same brotherhood. You have to understand this. There were three orders that worked together very closely. So Henry the Navigator was sending people willy-nilly around the world, mostly to go to Ethiopia to recover the Ark of the Covenant, which is a whole other side story, which we won't get into. Yeah. But the other one was to track the way and to connect with the Scottish Templars to find the track to the New World, to North America, where they could restart the story that they had begun in Portugal and Scotland. Because like I said, the church was pushing them ever, ever closer to the edge of the precipice. There's only one other place you can go from there, which is the sea. So the, the Portuguese were master seafarers. They got that from the Phoenicians 4,000 years ago. And the thing that connects all these stories together is the Genoese, okay? Uh, it kind of taps into the story of Christopher Columbus, but not really. Uh, the Genoese had some of the best captains in the Mediterranean, and the first Portuguese that went to Jerusalem and hang out with the proto-Templars uh, when the Crusades liberated the city, or took it over, depending on your point of view, um, they were all sharing the same vision, and they were retained by the Portuguese Templars. So even 300 years later, they were still hiring their services from Genoa because they also had the best maps, which they said, we have borrowed these from the Arab traders who got their maps from the ancient Egyptians who said that they got their maps from the gods over 12,000 years ago. And the maps, and I quote, are as good today as they were back in the day that they were made. And this is where you get all these stories of maps that, that for example, is one of Antarctica, right. which shows Antarctica completely ice-free as two yeah. continents with a big river in between. Well, that's exactly what it looks like. And the last time that happened was in, what, 15,000 BC? So whoever made that map had to be around during the time of the gods. So the Genoese had access to these maps, which of course the Portuguese loved to get their hands on. And they said that uh, we're gonna basically map a new route to create a new uh, kingdom in Canada and eventually in America. And uh, we're gonna be finding, uh, be free from the church. And the rest, and the rest of course, as you know, is history. You've all gone very quiet. Wow. <laughs> I just <laughs> we're trying we're trying to formulate our questions here is where we're like, oh. yeah. <laughs> Uh, I originally, um, we can, well, now we've put kind of put the things like I had questions about. I know in your book you talk about the connections that the uh, that the Templars had with, and you mentioned it quickly. For saying we're not going to get into it, but Ethiopia and like uh, for for instance the the stone churches of Lalibela, like you you meant you talked about those and that there is a you, you've seen a, a definite connection there with with the Templar. 
I was able to read the um, the diaries of some of the Portuguese explorers that went there. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm Portuguese by birth, and I can still read medieval Portuguese. You just got to be very slow. They put a lot of commas, and it takes forever to get to the point. <laughs> and I found a lot of these documents written on animal skin in Harvard, of all places. And I had to beg. I mean, I literally begged for them to let me in because you know you've got to pay 96 grand a year to access Harvard. And uh, they actually checked out my record as a pu- uh, published author, and they said, actually, this is actually really interesting uh, don't tell anybody but we'll let you go come in six times this year and i made every second count and i read those accounts and one of them was about the, the uh, portuguese that went to ethiopia excuse me and uh, they, they were adamant on trying to make a connection to a part of the bloodline that found its way to ethiopia uh, the rest of that story i actually uh, uh, hand over to graham hancock uh, he wrote a very definitive book about the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia, which I find very convincing, uh, called The Sign and the Seal. And he kind of helped me bridge that gap. Uh, I basically put the other gap together, which is what the Portuguese were doing there. And that is that they were trying to close the loop. Uh, they eventually, they had started off in Jerusalem, protecting the divine bloodline. And then that bloodline went to France and Portugal and eventually to Scotland. And then, boom, we don't know anything anything else. So they were trying to go back to Ethiopia to connect the loop and also find out more documents that were still part of the Ark and the part of the documents that were never found underneath Temple Mount. Whether we found them, we don't know. It was a, a secret organization. But what we do know is that those uh, those churches that were carved out of solid rock, uh, the Ethiopians said they were carved by hand by these uh, white people, very tall Europeans dressed in white tunics, which sounds very much like the Knights Templar. So they're already there. And some of the Portuguese words uh, uh, also come from Ethiopia and vice versa. And the Ethiopian kings were also marrying the uh, Portuguese kings to create, to cement the blood ties between the two countries. So it's a very, there's not much information on it because they try to keep a very heavy lid on that information. Now, one of the questions that I had when I was thinking is when they were coming up with these practices of, you know, like every, we're all kind of can be a god, was this, did they come up with this before they found these scrolls? In Egypt, or is this something that maybe they learned from these scrolls? They appear to have already known about them because when they, the place where they came from, it was Burgundy. Uh, France didn't exist back then. It was a bunch of uh, little kingdoms. And Burgundy was kind of the area where, well, it still exists today, and it includes a bit of Switzerland as well. And it was the most enlightened part of Europe. Uh, and, uh, you know, Muslims and Arabs were working side by side heaven forbid, you know, uh, and they shared information. And they said, actually, we had the same information. Uh, uh, we call things by slightly different names. We want to make sure that everybody understands the mysteries teachings, part of which, of course, was Kabbalah. Uh, and uh, they were teaching these to these minor nobles, many of whom ended up being the heads of the Templar order. So they were already indoctrinated into that system of understanding. The the How they understood the rest of it was because the information of where the scrolls were hidden what they contained was kept underground. It went through this stream of people that changed their name constantly to avoid capture. So they were part of all of these families that belonged to the same bloodline in Europe, going back to the time of the Sumerians. And they kept a very low profile. So they would have been taught a sort of a, an, a, a sort of a basic understanding of what they were getting themselves into. But the, the real meaty stuff was still buried in Temple Mount, which is, explains why they had to give up their wealth 
uh, and go and dig in very hot, uncomfortable conditions to get this stuff out and then back to Europe. And it was at that moment, it was about 11.25, I believe, that suddenly they all left Temple Mount uh, because they didn't, weren't doing any fighting there at all. They were just digging. And then suddenly, boom, they're everywhere. They're in France, they're in Portugal, they're in uh, London, they're in Scotland. And suddenly they're acquiring all of these properties and creating a massive network. So the whole thing was, uh, you can tell that they already had half of the story. The rest was just the icing on the cake. Oh, okay. Well, I had a question. This is a kind of a follow-up question. Uh, this is from Ryoan uh, on Discord. He's kind of asking a touch... Uh, question that's kind of on this he said you did an interview saying that the first templars were trying to find treasure or scrolls that had magical practices did you uncover anything about the magical practices or was it what do you oh, think i'd have to kill you if i told you <laughs> yeah <laughs> well i mean they form a yes and no they still kind of form the basis of rosicrucianism uh scottish right freemasonry uh, a lot of the ancient mysteries teachings a lot of the eastern teachings uh, the teachings of Kriya Yoga in India, for example. Uh, these are basic things to do with the elevation of the soul of the individual. It's about proper guidance, which allows you to become a better person while you're alive. Uh, a lot of them are very basic. In fact, uh, they form the Ten Commandments. I mean, that's the most incredible magic you possibly achieve to, in this lifetime. If you can master all ten of those, you're doing pretty well. Although if you can master the original 42, which is what the, the original Egyptian commandments are, you're doing really well. The rest were kept very secret, and you'll only find out. Uh, I don't even know if they're still around to this very day. Uh, they've been destroyed, buried, uh, kept in very deep jungle areas. But if I go to Yucatan, Guatemala, and South America, I talk to my colleagues down there, and they'll say, yeah, we still kind of teach that kind of stuff. Uh, if you can give us five years of your life, uh, we'll tell you them. And it's all to do with the, with, and I, uh, if I can quote this correctly, it's to do with understanding the laws of nature. And if you understand the laws of nature, you can move the laws of nature. And a, a very simple example, mm -hmm. if you go down to uh, New Mexico and it hasn't rained for 10 years, there are these great stories of the uh, Hopi and the Navajo and the Zuni going to sacred sites where the telluric currents happen to cross and they'll pray for rain, and suddenly, within 10 minutes, it's pouring down with rain. That's the kind of magic that we're talking about. Uh, how much there is, we don't know. Uh, a lot of it's been lost and, and sequestered. But essentially, the Greeks were still practicing in their mysteries teachings as far back as the second century AD. And people like Plato and Pythagoras were initiates of those schools, and that's why they wrote what they wrote. They had an inner understanding of how the mechanics of nature work. So if you think about it, if you can manipulate the laws of nature, you can become extremely dangerous if you don't know how to handle that stuff responsibly, which goes back to the what we've said before. Why was there an inner brotherhood? Well, they had to figure out that you were going to be responsible and you could be trusted with this stuff. Otherwise, you wouldn't allow anywhere near it. So the answer is yes and no. The uh, magical secrets, we kind of know some of them, but not all of them. Right. So it has to do like a lot of that stuff has to do with like telluric fields and like all like I don't know about all, but many ancient like megalithic sites and pyramids seem to be on these telluric fields. And like so so the the Knights Templar in your in your research is saying more that like they are more of a mystery school based on like prior prior schools, based on prior civilizations going back through Egypt and maybe and farther because when you start, you can go through like rabbit holes of each, like the great pyramids of like how they're formed and the Amir Orion's belt or they're on Tauric fields. It just, and we always say like, well, how did they build them? And 
But if they did, if they say there was an inner brotherhood in these ancient civilizations and they did figure out the laws of nature, let's say that's the secret, building the pyramids and stuff maybe was, maybe that's easier if you, if you unlock those secrets. Is, is that, could that be uh, deciphered that way? I think they may have lost it because otherwise they would have let the can out of the bag. I mean, uh, the nearest they got to it was building the Gothic cathedrals and the original name of Gothic, which is Goetine, uh, actually means to raise by magical action. There's a clue right there. And in fact, the arches of the Gothic cathedrals do look like the buildings are being raised as though by magic. I mean, that amount of stone raised on these very thin arches, uh, that's what the Arabs were very good at doing, was uh, creating this wonderful, um, I call it technology, because that's what it is. But they borrowed it from the Egyptians, and they had the understanding of anti-gravity. Uh, I'll give you a clue. Uh, the one thing that uh, you find all around the world with these temples are the stones that get dragged from hundreds of miles away. Well, why can't we just use that stone? It's right there. We don't have to move very far. We don't have to go 600 miles down the Nile to get a, a bunch of rocks. Well, no, because the rocks have something very important in them. It's the right type of quartz, the amount of quartz, magnetite and iron. And uh, when uh, Princeton University were looking at this, and I wrote about this in my, my second book, because uh, I, I think we're on the same page here, they were saying it's kind of funny how, you know, they were looking for these uh, these rocks that had a specific type of quartz, and they kept talking about how the, the blocks were moved. Literally, in the blink of an eye, they built a temple overnight, and it was always sound that was involved. So Princeton did this, this experiment where they actually took that kind of quartz, about this big, they put it into a cylinder, and they experimented with sound frequency. And there's a video, and I don't know if the website is still up, but it was still up in the 1990s. Um, the group is called PEAR, uh, Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research. And uh, you actually see that when they hit a specific note, the uh, quartz rises above the, the ground, so it's anti-gravity. That's what they were into. Um, if the Templars had known that, I think that they would have used it, uh, and I don't find any evidence for that. So that's part of the technology that is no longer there. But certainly, you can also use the effects of anti-gravity and telluric currents to put yourself in a location to allow the body, to, the soul to leave the body in a very controlled, methodical way. And that's consistent with every civilization that I've researched that uses the initiation. Uh, they call it the raising of the dead, by the way, right. uh, or the raising of the corpses, as they call it in India, uh, to basically have an experience of the other world and come back with specialist knowledge about the mechanics of nature. So in the end, ironically, they didn't have to read the manual. They could just have this out-of-body experience travel to the other world, come back to the body, and go on practicing life much more aware than they were before. Um, Leonardo da Vinci was also part of this tradition. Uh, Isaac Newton hints that he may have been part of it, but certainly the Greeks were still practicing in the second century, and they'd learned their craft from the Egyptians, who learned their crafts from somebody else. So the, the Templars are really part of this old tradition uh, that, uh, really, uh, that the ultimate technology is about the technology of how you discover about yourself, about the origin of the soul, and how to make your life here while you're alive on this planet worthwhile. You know, treasure every moment and make the best of it. Be aware of what you're doing, because if you can do that, you can go back when you physically die and say, you know what, I did pretty well. I actually made good progress of the soul, and now I can go on to do other things. Because, as I said, that's all there is to do in the universe, is to become a better person while you're here. Wow. I like that. Yeah. So ultimately, it wasn't really that difficult. The answer of the temp that the Templars were searching for, it's really a very new age ideal, isn't it? It's words to live by. It requires a lot of information to understand how to get there. A lot of information, a lot of open mind. Like you got to 
think, right? That's, uh, I could see why it would be so uh, detrimental to like the state of the church at the time though, right? If the, if the church at the awesome. time is we get, uh, God needs your tithes. Uh, this is the word of God. Like this is, it's a, they had a grapple on not only government, but like on control of people. Like if it was this way, there, there was the only way. And if the Knights, if the Knights Templar, it, I could see if, I could see why they, if that secret, like if their, their version of their religion got out to, let's say the yeah. Catholic church, I could see why you'd want to be like, no, this is, this is detrimental to our our rule over this, the land. This is hitting our bottom line. Yeah, this, this, is, uh, yeah, this is crunching us. And, and that's what they were saying. I mean, you have to put the story into context of the period. You can't just look at the Templars. You go look at the story around them, what was going on at the time. And they were essentially the little bit of annoying grit in the engine block, you know, and right. that little grit can bring the whole engine to a complete stop. And they said, you know, we're holding a secret that will cause a mass societal change. And that was also what the Order of Sion was saying at the same time, too. Uh, we'll bring out the secret in its own right time, but it will basically change the whole course of European history. So, of course, uh, the people in power, they don't want to know about that because they took over the power of Europe uh, around about the 4th century uh, when they brought in the Carolingians, or was it the 8th century? I can't remember. But uh, the Merovingians were holding the bloodline in Europe, this very ancient bloodline, uh, this bloodline of uh, divine um, kings and queens. And uh, and they're still around today, by the way. They just most of them don't know who they are for their own good. But the church sponsored the Carolingians and put them on the throne, and they subverted the whole course of Europe. So this is there's a big, big fight between good and evil going on ever since. And, you know, part of the Illuminati are part of that. Part of the London Rite of Freemasons are part of that. But then you've got the counterpart, which is the Scottish Rite, which are still teaching the same things, the same spirituality, uh, to this very day. Uh, in fact, they, they also uh, uh, allow women into their um, brotherhood. So they're exactly like the Templars were behaving because they too were married and the women also held positions of power. So they were pretty enlightened people for their age, almost Buddhist when you want to think about it. Right. And now to me, that makes so much more sense when you think about the swift action that was taken against them by the Pope and by King Philip, you know, as opposed to looking at, oh, you know what, they, King Philip owed them a little bit of money and the Pope didn't agree with their practices as far as, you know, the Muslim techniques and whatnot. You know what I mean? Like that just seems. And and let's such, say, and, and you know who would pump that story? The Pope, you know what I mean? The church, that's the <laughs> totally. story that they would want to present moving forward is that, like, yeah, yeah, we, they owed us money, whatever. It's like, or, or no, they weren't trying to awaken the masses, right? Huge. <laughs> yeah. The classic fake like news. thing in 1139, when the uh, seat was up for power uh, on the Vatican, uh, the most influential person in Europe at the time, who was Bernard of Clairvaux, who was essentially, he actually handpicked most of the Templars himself and most of the original Templars were also Cistercian monks, by the way. So if you want to understand the Templars, you have to understand Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, I read 500 of his surviving letters just to get under his skin to find out where <laughs> this guy was going, what was going on in there. I kind of knew him after all this time. And it's true. He, the whole point was to try and take over and bring back a new form of Christianity, which is essentially not a Jesus idea. It's actually a Buddhist ideal. It's a Zen ideal when you think about it. Uh, and um, in 1139, he promoted one of the Cistercian monks to the throne of the Vatican. So the first thing this guy does is the first thing that he issues is a bull saying the Templars are now in an international order. You are completely free to do whatever the hell you damn well please without any interference from the church 
whatsoever. And within that year, they built the first Gothic cathedral and the rest for the next, what, 20, 30 years, they could do no wrong. They had complete control of everything. So that's what I said, that they had a small window where the original brotherhood was able to achieve so much. But they were up against it after that. They, uh, there, were, there were so many enemies trying to get hold of what they were tapping into that, uh, yeah, the whole story gets very complicated after that. So one of the things that jumped out to me when we were doing this research, uh, one of the characters I really enjoyed reading about was Alfonso the Battler. And something that jumped out was just the fact that, you know, instead of leaving any of his property or riches or anything to his family, he left them to the Knights Templar. And you know what I mean? It was also said after I did a little bit of research on him is that he carried a lot of relics, a lot of religious artifacts and whatnot. And do you think there's any possibility that he actually had his hands on some of these scrolls and learned about the truth, about the secret, and then that's why he decided to leave everything to the Knights Templar? Oh, I think there's an inkling of it. Again, you can't really prove it because everything was very hush-hush. Uh, this was very dangerous if it ever got out. Uh, and I said there was a penalty of death. Uh, I have the actual order. I think it's like the uh, order number 12 of the uh, rule of the elected brothers that says that if any brother should be caught talking about the inner teachings of the temple outside of the, the small congregation, they'll be put, well, they'll be excommunicated and given a, ser a serious hiding. And in more serious circumstances, they'll be put to death. They were serious about keeping this information away from people who would misuse it. So we don't know. There's there's hints that the information was so important, not just for myself, but for everybody around me, for my family, for my neighbors. Everybody gets the benefit. And once you see the benefit and you've lost fear of death because you've already experienced death and therefore are free from fear of, of, of dying, well, it doesn't matter who you give your money to, so you might as well give it to the people who are going to foster uh, a new kind of enlightened society, a utopia in the middle of what back then was this horrible place called Europe. Ooh, interesting. I like that. <laughs> it's it's uh, So basically what you're saying is by you having us, like us having you on the show, we're all modern day Knights Templars, is what you're saying. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, all right. I like it. There we go. I'm going to go. I got to go get my chainmail. I got to go put Sir, my chainmail on. Sir Freddy. All of you, only 30 pieces of silver because that was the amount that we had to pay to get into the order. So, cough it up. <laughs> Did you got PayPal? Yeah. You got PayPal yeah. or what? <laughs> Yeah, essentially, if you're following that kind of idea of, you know, being the example that you want to see around you and learning these teachings, whether you want to call them the Ten Commandments or the 42 Commandments or the Pharaoh or the teachings of uh, Zen or Buddhism, uh, Native American teachings, whatever you want to call them, they're the same thing, really. Ultimately, it's about empowering yourself to be a better person and leaving the place around you better than when you found it. Right. Uh, that's the best you can do. You can't really ask for more than that. And if you can change the world 1%, while you're here, you've done pretty well. And and basically the Knights Templar were a group of people doing just that in the most dangerous time to yeah. do just that. Exactly. <laughs> right. And they were doing a very slick, they were like doing a very slick job of like staying under the radar and you know, changing when they you know when they needed to and adapting to their circumstances. It's, it's well, actually like after talking to you, I, I have much, you know, much more respect and interest in them now, like after uh, after hearing you talk about them. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, a small group of guys, there were 11 altogether, the main core group, not nine. And uh, half, a couple of them were already Portuguese to begin with. And uh, when they were trying to create this country from scratch, I was amazed how they were so patient about it. 
I mean, they, I mean, they really were exceptionally patient. They would have moments where things were going slowly, then the right people would just die of old age or some problem with their health. And they said, okay, we'll just have to be patient and wait for the right moment. And they'd be their time and somehow everything just fell into place while trying to get rid of the country of the Moors. And here's the funny thing, when they finally rendered up the Moors and they cornered them and they said, listen, you're going to die. Uh, we're just better at handling a sword than you are, let's face it. Now, here's the choice. You're either going to die or you're going to go and lose everything and you're going to go back to North Africa. Or here's the third option. You're going to respect the people on whose land you have taken. You're going to let people worship their idols and their gods, no matter who they are, whether they're Christians, Jews, heathens, uh, pagans, Celts. And if you do that, we'll give you back your land and your money and you won't be persecuted. And a lot of the Moors actually said, really? And said, yeah. Uh, okay, well, I'll agree to love my neighbor. Well, there you go. It wasn't that difficult, was it? And a lot of the Arabs stay behind in this very day. Uh, I think much of Portugal is still very proud of its uh, Arab heritage. We incorporated part of it into our culture, and it's made it a much, much better place. It was kind of the original United States of Europe. If you were persecuted, you were allowed into Portugal, and that's the other big thing that the Templars were into. You are persecuted, we want to talk to you. Come over here, you'll be okay. You can do whatever you like, just respect everybody else. And that's how they created this, you know, Europe's first nation state. Who would have thought? It's it's actually very interesting that you say it like that, because to me, uh, as a Canadian living in Canada, that's a very Canadian ideal. And if you're saying that, you know, that this is kind of where the Templars, I wonder how much of influence Canada got of that from the Templars coming over of like, be very respectful to each other. Because when you say that, it, it our country seems to be founded on those ideals. Yeah. I'm moving. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can drive there very quickly. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> red maple leaf, red cross, mm, yeah. white, mm, surrounded in field of red. If you're traveling by ship from Europe and you're coming north, down uh, above Newfoundland, what is the first piece of land that you touch as you get into Canada? It's a test of geography. Well, if you're coming down from Greenland down, like you're coming across and down? From the north, around Newfoundland, around the St. Lawrence, uh, the St. Lawrence Valley, the first piece of land that you enter is Magdalen Island. Oh, <laughs> no way. And I have, uh, when I was in uh, Montreal, uh, I love Montreal, uh, I was doing a presentation there, and there's someone that gave me a book by a lady, a uh, Canadian researcher, who wrote a, a unique book about the Templars in Canada, and I still haven't had time to read it. It's a very, very thick book. And apparently she makes that case, that they, there's a lot of clues in Montreal, Montreal, for example. Right. And the yeah. fact that Main Cathedral is dedicated to who? John the Baptist, Ooh. yeah. And next door is who? Mary Magdalene. There are all of these clues lying around that I'm going, I've got to get around to reading this book because it sounds like she's doing what I did for Portugal, for Canada. So I do believe that. Uh, and yeah, and you go to Canada, there's a sense of peace about it, isn't there? And I really mean that. I mean, I really like Canadians a lot. I mean, I, I was even married to one of them. So uh, there is a sense of peace about that land. They seem to have it just right on most things. We have our share of assholes here too, but maybe just not as many. <laughs> it's, uh, you, yeah, not everybody's perfect, you know? Yeah. Like, New Zealand is perfect. I don't know. Oh, New Zealand's amazing. <laughs> but on the topic of Knights Templar in Canada, in North America, I know we're pretty much, we said we got an hour, so we're pretty much there. But just a quick, uh, because there's a lot of theories about them, like some type of 
treasure or something on Oak Island. They've done oh, how, no. how many uh, seasons? How, it's like eight seasons. How quickly can you bash down Oak Island and Templars real quick? And there isn't a shred of evidence. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, there is illusions, uh, but I don't. I think they came much later. By this time, you're talking Rosicrucianism. Uh, Wait a minute. You're telling me that reality TV is not to be believed? The History Channel. Uh, excuse me. Uh, what those two guys have done to that location is they should be put in jail for damage to the environment, let alone what else they've damaged there. Um, no, I, I, someone actually forced me to watch some of those programs, and I sat there with you know, uh, teeth clenched. I'm going, oh, God, this is the complete obvious one. And uh, uh, she's an editor. She said, what's the obvious one? Well, the obvious one are the white boulders, the huge white boulders, which are really pretty obvious. Because when you look at them from above, they form the, the constellation of the uh, the swan, which is the symbol of the Rosicrucian order and the secret orders back in the day. But this is that we're talking now 100, 200 years after the Templars have changed their names. Right. Yeah. If you want to find the trap door, the main door into the site, follow the neck of those stones and it'll be in a bay. But you won't find it. Why? Well, because the time when it was constructed and the time today when they're digging it up, if you live here, as I do in the uh, the Gulf of Maine, the sea level has risen over 12 feet during that era. Okay, uh, much of it to do it because of the land moving up and down because of the glacial melt. melt yep. uh, and that's why it keeps getting trapped with water. Uh, it wasn't so back then. It was just a trap. Now it's just filling up with water because of the uh, the tides are too high. They'll never find it and they destroy it anyway. But I think it was another order that was following on in the tradition. So there may or may not be something there. But again, you're following a huge secret. Uh, they kept very tight-lipped about this. And there was an order of death. Uh, if you told anyone about what was going on, well, pretty sure that we're not going to find out about it. Right now, I know we're running out of time, and it's a—it's to me, it's a goddamn shame we didn't even get to all your research and all your knowledge about the Templars on Mars. So we're going to have to save that <laughs> for another time. Uh, and all the clues and evidence, all, all the you evidence, know you know, ready to publish your next book on that big connection. I like, you know that's coming up. It's going to be twelve hundred pages. Like, looking yeah. forward to it. It's it's good. So we'll have to have you on for a part two of Templars on Mars because yep. we didn't even get into the thick of it. That'll um, be your winds of winter. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, there's Egyptians on Venus. <laughs> yeah, put that in there too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so easy getting on ancient aliens, isn't it? Oh, sorry, I shouldn't mention. Yeah, <laughs> so I've been bad from that show. Uh, no, it's 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 good. Uh, the lack of any any evidence is a sure sign that a conspiracy exists and it's got to be alien. So uh, it's kind of funny because there's so much good evidence in, uh, out there. You don't have to make anything up. Just follow the trail. It speaks for itself. You don't have to actually try it that hard. You yeah. just got to be aware of what you're looking for and then spend time. Uh, it's all there. You don't have to make stuff up. And uh, it just makes work of people like myself so much more difficult because I get emails all the time of, I read this in Ancient Aliens. And, oh, God, how do I put this politely? It's... <laughs> Yeah. Never mind. You know, you know where it's going. <laughs> there's there's uh, a lot of stuff. Honestly, I I hope one day, Freddie, that uh, I know we sometimes uh, we've you know 2020 was a weird year, but we were looking to book some similar uh, events this year that you were listed on. I hope one day we can sit down in person to have a, a beer with you because uh, I I I love listening to you talk, and every time I I leave a conversation with you i want to go do a whole bunch more research on the topic because <laughs> i'm I, my interest has been peaked. that's what we call it research 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, hundred uh, percent. Freddie, you're an infe- infectious speaker. Uh, your ta- your theories and your research is awesome. It's fun talking well, to you. Uh, where, tell the people where they can get get all your books. Do you have? I think you have six published books don't right now. Make Jeff Bezos richer than he is. Make me richer than I'm not. Yes. Go to invisibletemple.com and get the books there. Get the DVDs and of course, just like I did. Well, there's one. Hey, you're the one that bought it. Well done. <laughs> that was me. Bestseller in Portugal, and I actually was number one, and Dan Brown was number two. Um, but no, there's lots of articles there, which are all free. You can spend the whole week there just enjoying yourself. So have fun. Pick yourselves up a couple books. Freddie Silva, invisibletemple.com. We'll post the links in the show notes. Um, Freddie, you know what I love about you is you have no social media. Uh, what's that? Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's great. Awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. I like it. Yeah, I, I I don't really use Messenger. I just I just go on Facebook and that's it. There's a page there. Uh, I put silly things and important things at the same time because you can spend too much time being too serious. Sometimes you've got to let your hair down. In fact, I just put a nice uh, little uh, post there the other day about um, one of my friends on Facebook who happens to be uh, Tony Tony Bennett, who is yeah. <laughs> a silk cut of jazz. He is the man. Awesome. So who would have known? He's got some very good recipes for pasta as well, by the way. And you should <laughs> who, who knew? Who, who knew? <laughs> All right, everybody. Hey, th- thanks, uh, thanks, Freddie. Thanks, guys. We'll uh, we'll have to we'll have to do some uh, ancient cultures and more stuff with you on uh, on part three of the long promised three part arc coming sometime in the future. It'll be the fourth part of a trilogy. Yes. Yeah, there you yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Okay, everyone, Thanks, guys. everyone watching, we're going to take a break and we'll be back after, but we're going to say goodbye to Freddie here. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. We're Dude. back and my thing in the stream is gone and no, Freddie Silva's a screenshot. <laughs> we got we got a screenshot of Freddie <laughs> Silva here, but Dan always went massive Dan. We got to get him back here. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> King Dan. King Dan. Uh, <laughs> Much like a King Tide, we have King Dan. Um, dude, Freddie Silva is such a good speaker. So fun to listen Dan, to. Dan, he's, he's you. He's like, he must be a 10th degree maester. <laughs> he's me like, after I published my first book. Yeah. 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 Because, dude, he honestly, like reading his book is good. His book is good. Uh, to be honest, I've got 30 pages left. I haven't quite finished it. But like reading his book and listening to him fucking talk I'm like, it, he he's just such a good speaker, man. I can't give that guy enough credit. I'm going to reach out to him because I want to send him a shirt. I was going to ask him uh, if he wants a shirt. I was going to say we should send him either a coffee mug or like something that he wants. If he doesn't yeah. want a t-shirt, something coffee he'll mug. Use. Something he'll use. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah if he's not going to wear a shirt, <laughs> we'll send him a wants. mug. We don't, we, don't <laughs> got bu- we don't got collared button-ups, but we should. Yeah. We should have them. We should. Well, we, we, We've hey, had requests. Hey, listen, I'll make one for him. Custom order. <laughs> he wants one. I'll send him a color button up. Um, the guy is a f- like honestly. I, I can't wait to hear him talk. Bring him back on for ancient civilizations because, awesome. God damn, he's fun to talk to. And it's it's great because like I had a list of questions on my other monitor here, and much like I remember with crop circles, as we're just talking to him, I'm just like. That question's been answered. That question's been answered. That question's been answered. That question's been answered. Like the entire time. I was going to ask more about uh, uh, John the Baptist and Mary, but I didn't want to go too far because well, we get, we get, we get, deep we, into we get too Da Vinci Code if we go that way. So, but I, I like yeah. we got we got all the good stuff, all the points that I wanted him 
I mean, an hour's not enough time to really dig in everything he's done, but, you know, they'll touch Get on everything. Man, go give that guy some love. Order his books. He's a beauty. If he's if he's I hope coming, we get to meet him. I hope we meet him in person one day. Honestly, yeah. Once uh once the COVID shit settles down, you can have conferences again. If Freddie Silva's there, make sure you go. Yeah. If he's and if he's I'm in your make town, sure we're going. Yeah, we'll be there too. Hopefully. Yeah, he's a seriously nice guy. So and, nice. Uh, really, I mean, really knows his stuff. Like he he's he puts a lot of work into his books. Um, he does it all himself. He doesn't have research assistants. He told us like he doesn't have actual research assistants do all of his work like some other authors, but uh, he does all this stuff. Graham Hancock. <laughs> <laughs> well, now he's not coming on the show. He was never coming on anyway. No, that was a COVID um, call. No, but I, no, but he mentioned that, and that is that's seriously impressive. Like doing all the research yourself, like just just the research we do for the show is sometimes is like whoa and then it's like doing an entire book like 10 years worth of research went into his templars book which he said was a side project well he's the templar book is yeah, a side project he said he is, started it as a side project and it took him from the day he started to when it was published was 15 years yeah so it's you know bananas. 15 years almost you know but ten, a like, decade and change he didn't it's, do all like for, it was like probably 10 years of research so but still over 15 years working on that book piece by piece. That's, yeah. That's he makes insane. a lot of, ser- he like makes a lot of interesting connections and you go through that and you'd learn a little, you learn a, a lot about, you know, like little things in history, little, little known events in history that, that make, make stuff a little bit more interesting. So uh, just more stuff to look into if you, if you really exactly. get down to it for, for someone like me, it's like, wow, like I never heard of this before. Like, I kind of want to look more about this up. Like, is this, is this something that's, that's really thing? So, um, you know, anything that takes you a little bit further down the rabbit hole with some, with some cool stuff. And plus Dude, his, his the, outlook, the guy's a uh, modern day night Templar. is great. He's a, he's a modern day night Templar is yeah. what he is. Yeah. Um, I like tied us into it because I'm like, we're giving you yeah. a platform. So we're kind of yeah, nice Templars, Templars too. too. <laughs> nah. Nah. He's a descendant, man. I enjoy him He's a so descendant. Because like I enjoy his research and his, and his book so much because it's like, it's just his general outlook, like his general philo- like philosophy, like he kind of puts out there. It's not, it's not something like he's so much trying to, to prove people wrong. He's just saying he's how, at least with the Templar stuff, it's more of like a, you know, awakening of consciousness. It's like mm-hmm. expanding your knowledge and the bounds of, you know, your awareness really, which is just where, where all that comes from. Fantastic. Like I, I love all that. Yeah. So. yeah. He, he's great. And he's phenomenal. Uh, we weren't going to do it on this episode, but we kind of got to now. So why don't we get into a little bit of space news? Surprise space news. What do we got? Surprise space news. Well, first off, I did see something about another new monolith has popped up. Two. Um, two new ones? One Where in England, were they? England and Canada both had a monolith. England, well, I thought England and Canada, and there I thought there was one on like a beach somewhere in the States. But um, could have been that one too. They're popping up all everywhere. So, you know, whether they're an art structure and you know, or there's something else. Maybe they're maybe they have something to do with the Templars. Prove me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Let me spend um, 15 years right right next But no, this is right not wrong. the space news that I called an emergency meeting of the space news for. It's that trending just 
an hour and a half ago, the former Israeli space security chief says ex- aliens exist and humanity is not ready to learn. Yeah. Um, this guy, Haim Ashed, Haim Ashed, and he's the current, Haim, Haim Ashed, dude, come on. I'm a Ashed, what is he I am Ashed, I am Ashed. I am Ashed. Uh, shaped like a shed. Current professor and retired Israeli general Haim? who was uh, the head What's he of- professor Is- of? I don't know, fucking dopeness or something. Uh, <laughs> I think he was that's pertinent, but he was the head of. No, what's more, per, who gives a fuck if he's a professor? I don't care. What's more important <laughs> is that he was the head of Israel's secret or Israel's space security program for thirty years, mm. and he was a Israel's three-time. Put a lot of people in space. He was a three-time recipient of the Israel Security Award, and he's saying that a galactic federation of aliens is in contact with the United States and Israel and that they have decided that humanity is not yet ready for contact. Dude, this guy's late to the party. Paul Hellier, Canadian Minister of Defense, already said this like in 2004. Yeah. But that's now now Paul Hellier. He was old as shit at the time. So wait, so, so now if the... Did he say just United States and Israel or he said all he, this... I'm guessing is what he meant is like that he knows of. He... Well, they're they're strong allies, so it makes sense if they were. Yeah, yeah. But I, okay, sure. That's what he it's said. Because there's a Stargate in Jerusalem, and that's no, why it's, it's been so sought out. Said that so out of the Templars. Well, maybe there's one in Jerusalem too. <laughs> the Templars were digging under Temple Mount for the Stargate. Listen, exactly. Dude, he, he talks about in his press conference where he releases his information. He talks about the U.S. having a pact with these aliens because they want to understand the fabric of the universe. Uh, this core. Cooperation includes a secret underground base on Mars where there are American and alien representatives. Fucking Corey Good and the boys, man. We've talked about this. We have talked about did it. He, I, like, uh, also, did he also say where we can purchase his book and who's got his uh, TV show and movie deal rights? Did he talk about that at all? Uh, no, but he okay. said that um, he said Trump was on is aware and it was on the verge of disclosing their existence. Oh, However, the Galactic He would have told everybody. The Galactic Federation stopped him from doing so, saying they uh, nobody stopped. They wish to prevent anything. <laughs> mass hysteria. <laughs> you would have got a fucking four thirty a.m. fucking tweet about all it. All caps tweet. All caps tweet. Yeah. Aliens if he are had a real. Federation Big of news. You know about Only them, it's I would tell my team. Huge. <laughs> huge news. Yeah, that's cool um, though. I like that. So that's he's fun. the he's the he's was the head of all this stuff. So he's got all those connections. So he has a bunch of documentation to back this up, right? It'll be coming. When yeah. was it? Was this like we're talking like 1974? He was the head here, or is this like recently? Um, like when? When was this happening? It doesn't say, but oh, it's trending. Okay. It's trending on all social media. That makes it. Oh, then it's got to be true. It has to be true. Then. True. That only makes sense. I believe it. I'm in. Yeah. I Paul Hellier already said it. This guy's reaffirming yeah. what, what I already know. I think Paul Hellier said there's four different species of aliens actually visiting. Not all are good. So. Yeah. Didn't they? Wasn't he a little bit crazy though? Didn't they come out with something about of course, him being? Well, of course, a bit of a- because he's a government official, not and not just any minister of defense. That's top position in Canada. Even though our military is nothing special, but still, like, you're, you're the, hey, we got a submarine in the fucking West Edmonton Mall. We got two, yeah. two in so West Edmonton Mall, and I think two that, of three. I think we got one more <laughs> that actually sails. But either way, or subs, 
I don't think it sails. It subs. Yeah, Tumble sandwiches now? It glides through the whatever the fuck you want to call it. We got one in the ocean. It's probably not. You know what? We probably have one in the ocean. It hasn't left port in years. It's just sitting yeah. there. <laughs> right. Either way, I like that. I like that space news. All right. When he oh, drops all, all his secret, when he drops all his secret documents, I'll be ready. When he drops all yeah. the stuff that he got from his uh, his time in the Ministry of Defense or whatever. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Why say that? He is 87 years old. <laughs> so he was <laughs> working in the 70s. That's fucking hilarious. <laughs> right? Why come out and say that? There's only two reasons. You just want to get it out there or you're fucking crazy. Well, did he, was this press conference, did it take uh, place in his dementia ward? That I have no I, idea. In his okay. old folks home? Yeah. Dude, he just... Probably his mansion, actually. The only, it doesn't matter if he's old. The only reason he's saying it now because he's old because if he gets killed... It doesn't matter. He's already he doesn't, old. Get, he doesn't give a He's fuck. He's 87. He lived a great life. Now he can Probably spill the beans. Die. He wants the glory no. of being the one to spill the beans. There you go. I would. I would do the exact same thing. I dig it. And should, uh, we got a theory out of the week, Zell. I think it was chosen was Wade McDonald, who also had an identical surgery to Maester Daniel here, getting his appendix removed and inserting a, I think he claimed was a 200 terabyte hard drive, which seems 16 a 16 terabyte, pretty sure. What did he say? So I think we said 16 terabyte hard drive. 16, almost as good as 200, but still ridiculously big hard drive. 16 terabyte. Yeah. You can't find that. That's a custom order. You can have a whole history of the Slavic nations and the Baltic nations in there. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty cool. History. Yes. That's why I put on my hard drive, all the history of the world. Uh, It was a pretty funny post on our Facebook group. Yeah. Uh, So congratulations to you. If you want Uh, to. Zell, we got some new Patreoners or what? Oh, we always got some new Patreoners. Supporting the show, being a bunch of beauties. My button's going to work. Oh, there it goes. There it goes. If you're not on our Patreon already, head over to patreon.com slash alien theorist podcast or find the link in the podcast description. Live streams, bonus content, after hours, a whole bunch of good stuff. Go check it out. This week's Patreon supporters, Giraffe Nuts. Interesting. Russian. That's collective Russian government spying on us, I'm sure. Cool. KGB, nice. Yep. Tenley. Angelica. John Botts. Matthew. Dallas Hulkovich. That's a dope name. Hulkovich? That is a dope, dope name. Felicia. <laughs> Kyle. Felicia, maybe? No, well, you could say what you want. Definitely not fallacious. <laughs> <laughs> I say it this way. I think they did that on purpose. They spelled it that way on purpose to do it. Kyle, Blake, Cates, Edgar Ballesteros, Imagine Vegeta himself is supporting the show. Everybody, nice, fantastic. Everett Hindman, Laura Andrews, Kyle Stubler. Back-to-back Kyle's here. Kyle Luckner, Preston Lynn, and Baphomet's titty fitting for today. And that's it for this week. Thank you very much for supporting the show. We appreciate it. And as we always say at the end of these things, keep those eyes on the skies. See you on After Hours.